Let's, let's begin with prayer. Father, we're grateful that you brought us together on this, uh, your Lord's Day, and I ask that you'll help us during these moments uh, together in John's Gospel, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand, to perceive what it is you are teaching us from your Word. And we ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, so we're in John chapter 2 this morning, uh, moving into John chapter 3. Uh, next week on Palm Sunday is our last Sunday together, and I hope to end our time together with some reflection on Jesus and the woman at the well, Jesus and the woman of Samaria. So that's that's the goal. Um, if you remember last week, we saw the first of Jesus' signs that he did was at the wedding at Cana. And we reflected a little bit on the significance of that particular um, miracle that Jesus did on, on at the beginning of his ministry as a sign. Now, uh, a little discussion from our time last week. These signs that were given um, have their, I guess, their substantial framework given to them from the Old Testament. The language of sign was something that you see in the book of Exodus, you see in the book of Isaiah. A sign is something that's given to show, number one, um, the presence and the power of God among His people. And number two, a sign is given to engender faith. So there's, there's, a, there's a movement toward the giving of signs. And in John's Gospel, there are seven signs. We get the sense that these numbers are important in John's Gospel. There are seven signs that are given. The first one is at Cana. Uh, and the last one is the resurrection of the dead. That is that sign number seven. Um, we also saw last week that Jesus did this first miracle at Cana on the seventh day of the opening of his ministry. And we reflected a little bit on the significance of that seventh day notion because there's already, because of John chapter one, a creation context that have, that's been given to our understanding of the identity of this person named Jesus. Who, who is Jesus? Um, what, what, what are you, Jesus? And the answer that's given is, well, Jesus, this man that's walking around who's truly man, is also fully, truly God. So whatever can be said about humanity um, can be said about Jesus, and whatever can be said about God can be fully said about Jesus as well. That is the mystery of what theologians call the hypostatic union. Okay, um, That is, you have two natures that are joined in one person, uh, Jesus of, of Nazareth. So we're not left in the dark in John's Gospel regarding who Jesus is. And Jesus begins His work, His public ministry, His work of reconciliation on the seventh day of His coming out, on the seventh day of His coming forth to say, I am here to do the, the, to exegete for you and to bring to you um, an understanding of who God is. And why is that significant? Because the seventh day of creation is the, is the place, it's the location from which God is doing His providential ordering of creation toward its ultimate redemptive end. The seventh day is the, the final um, goal of creation's existence. And by the way, that's the case before the fall as well. And I don't want to kind of tread water in this area again, but just to emphasize, I think it's probably right theologically to understand that even if Adam and Eve had never fallen, that their existence in the garden would have been taken into another plane of existence into the seventh day of God's Sabbath rest. And that is the place 
from which Jesus begins His ministry there on, on the seventh day. So there's a lot going on here. Significant things that are going on. And so Jesus begins this uh, at the wedding of Cana, turning water into wine, showing again His own creative power to take the properties of water and to turn them into the properties of wine and then to get us out of the gate on the way to the cross. Jesus first revealed His glory at the wedding at Cana. Now what is this saying to us about how John is shaping his Gospel? John's Gospel is shaped in such a way that the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jesus, the revelation of God's power, His effective creative and redemptive power are revealed in John's Gospel primarily at the cross. That's where God's glory is revealed. And all of the preparatory revealings of His glory along the way anticipate that signal moment in John's Gospel. So the way in which I sort of had this, if I was good at drawing, I, and I'm not, although I'm tempted, but I won't, um, uh, is to think about the cross casting a narratival shadow over the entirety of John's Gospel beginning from, the, from the, John chapter 1 all the way into uh, the Passion. Some have argued, by the way, that John, uh, the first the 16, 17 chapters of John are all understood as mere preparation for the Passion. Now that's that, and this is significant for the season that we're at actually in now liturgically. Um, all of this is preparing us for the Passion, including John chapter 2. So when we get away from uh, the first unveiling of His glory, there with the turning of water into wine, then we see Jesus do something in John chapter 2 that all of the other Gospel writers put at the end of Jesus' ministry. I'm, I'm thinking a little bit about Palm Sunday these days, uh, coming up next week. And in sort of thinking about Palm Sunday, our reading for next week in, in, uh, in the lectionary cycle will be Luke's Gospel. You know how that works. There's a three-year lectionary cycle, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, depending on where you are. We happen to be in year C, so we're getting the Luke reading um, next week. And the Luke reading is rather profound because here you have a Jesus, and we'll do this all together next week. Jesus uh, rides the triumphal entry on the back of a colt. These are funny narratives, by the way. I don't know if you read these. Um, go and tell the, them, go get that colt. Can you imagine? I hardly even conceive of this. If there's a colt in town, go get it. So they go and they get it, and Jesus says, and when they ask you, what are you doing? Taking my colt. Tell them the Lord needs it. And the narrative goes, they went, they got the cold, and the man asked, what are you doing? And they said, the master has need of it. And then they're gone. It's just, it's just, that's it. Right? They took his horse and have at it. The master needs it. And then Jesus is riding. And this is all based out of the imagery of the book of Zechariah. Jesus is riding into, the, into, the, um, into Jerusalem. They are cast, his disciples, this is key in Luke, his disciples are casting um, the palms in front of him and shouting out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus goes into the city. And then the next section is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Uh, he, see, he foresees what will happen in about 40 years with the destruction of the temple uh, there by Titus. And he also probably foresees what is connected to that even in the future beyond this. So he, he laments, he weeps over Jerusalem. And then what's the next scene in Luke's Gospel? He's cleansing the temple. That, that's how Luke moves. Triumphal entry the weeping over Jerusalem, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus embodying the judgment of God for His people. Well, that's not how John portrays it. 
John gives us the temple cleansing right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, fresh out of the gates at the wedding at Cana, and here is Jesus at Jerusalem. Now, this is another interesting feature of John's Gospel. Right? The, the, the other Gospels place Jesus' ministry primarily outside of Jerusalem. He's in Galilee, he's in the Sea of Tiberias, he's in Cana, uh, he's in Capernaum, and then he makes forays into Jerusalem. John's Gospel tends to emphasize Jesus' location in Jerusalem and his interactivity there with the leaders in Jerusalem. So here, right out of the wedding at Cana, Jesus is now south in Jerusalem, and he's cleansing the temple. Let's read this together. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. There were three um, uh, uh, pilgrimage Passovers in the the time of Jesus. You had, uh, I mean, did I say pilgrimage uh, festivals? Now, one of them was Passover. One of them was the Festival of Weeks. I believe, and the other one was the festival of Sukkot, or, or Tabernacles. So three festivals were festivals that, taught, that linked into a, pilg- a necessary pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem. And you see Jesus following in line. This is interesting. Jesus is a Jew. There's no question about that. Jesus thinks and feels and breathes in Jewish terms. Which is important, I think, in John's Gospel because John's Gospel has a lot of really bad things to say about the Jews. This has been, a, 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 by the way, a very contested aspect of the interpretation of John's Gospel. Is John's Gospel anti-Semitic? There, there are lots of books and thoughts that are written on that from John's Gospel's perspective because I think one can read it on the surface in that way. There's a lot of speaking against the Jews. I think what we're wanting to see, though, in John's Gospel is John is speaking against a certain kind of Jewish system that had set itself up over against God and His kingdom. I won't chase that, but I think one would be, have to be very careful to collapse a sort of the, the language about the Jews and Jewish leadership and the religious leaders onto Jews at, at, at large. I don't, I don't think that's what John's Gospel is doing at all. But here you have Jesus, who is a Jew, going to the Passover, which he was, would be expected to do, and we would assume not his first time. He'd gone regularly. And he went up to Jerusalem, which is, by the way, how you always go to Jerusalem. You're going up. And then he went to the temple. And he found that they were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers were sitting there. And, they, and then he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. I have more to say here about this, but this is a fascinating scene. I, I don't know what your picture of Jesus is. Um, I, and I, I, I was thinking about this even in, in some of the readings today uh, in church. I, I, you know, Jesus, is, um, Jesus is confounding. If, if you have a tendency to reduce Jesus um, to something that's manageable, uh, if you have an instinct to domesticate Jesus, um, He just refuses to be domesticated. I mean, this is the one who lets chill, who says, in, in a culture, by the way, 
that wasn't necessarily fond of children. We've romanticized children. I don't really anymore, but uh, <laughs> um, you know, and I do. I love my kids, right? But we've romanticized children. Um, in, in the first century world, ch- that children weren't, there was no romantic notion about children. Um, so children coming around and wanting to be around Jesus. And I mean, it would, it would have been the natural instinct, I think, in this world to say, I, I get away. Um, and Jesus says, no, let them come to me. Jesus spends time with a woman in the next chapter who's a Samaritan woman, and he shouldn't be there. I mean, he's breaking all kinds of, of religious and social norms, all kinds of norms. Sitting there with a woman by himself at a well, he knew who this woman was, and he shouldn't be there. And he's in Samaria. And they know that they shouldn't be with this sort of mixed-breed people. That's how the Jews would have viewed the Samaritans. This is a mixed-breed people that don't even worship the same in the same way, in the proper ways in which we worship. And Jesus says, we need to go through Samaria. Why? Well, he doesn't tell them. I've got a woman I need to see. I've got an encounter with a woman that I need to see in Samaria. So Jesus is confounding. but it's, so He's gentle. He's patient. He's eating messianic banquets with the wrong people. I mean, sinners and tax collectors and women of ill repute. and I mean, he's, he's Zacchaeus. I mean, this is Jesus. And yet at the same time, it's this, this character right here who, I, I don't know how, how to read this any other way than right off the surface, who takes cords and puts a cord together, which I guess we would just say some kind of whip, and he physically drives these money changers out of the temple. Uh, he's flipping tables up. I, I love the scene of this, by the way, in uh, Zeffirelli's uh, rendition, uh, King, of, uh, King of Kings. I, can't, I always forget one of that. Jesus of Nazareth? I think that's what it is. Now, I mean, Jesus goes in and he just tears the place apart, um, which is not a way to necessarily build friends. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't... I, I, you never get the sense in any of the Gospels that Jesus... Um, had any inclination or any deep desire to be liked. That's just, Jesus isn't operating that way. Um, there's no, you just don't get the sense, a lot of high-fiving. Uh, it's just, that's, he's just not, it's, being liked is not on the radar screen for Jesus. He is here doing something very specific to his vocation and his identity. He's cleansing the temple. The last verse of Zechariah chapter 14 claims that when the final day of the Lord comes, that the temple will no longer be a house of trade. Zechariah promises that. It's not going to be a house of trade. It's not going to be a place where commodities are swapped back and forth. And here, John is tapping into that. He even says this will not be a house of trade. Why? Because the Lord has come back to His temple to cleanse His temple, to make His temple right. Um, The other Gospels, when they refer, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they refer to the cleansing of the temple, they make a reference to Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, and Jeremiah chapter 7. Well, let's talk about those for a second. Isaiah 56 promises the coming salvation of God on the far side of the work of the suffering servant. And he says, my house will be a house of prayer. Jeremiah's first sermon that was not abstract but was concrete located in a particular place, is Jeremiah chapter 7. The first six chapters of Jeremiah talk about the judgment of God on His people in a rather abstract way. When you move into Jeremiah chapter 7, all of a sudden you see Jeremiah embodied in the flesh. And where is he preaching his first sermon? In the temple court. He's standing in the temple. 
to all of those who are going in and out to worship. And He's saying to them, hey, all of you going in and out to worship, do not say anymore, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord this is. Why? Because this will be a house of prayer. God is coming back to bring His judgment on this place. And if you are trusting in this structure alone, if you are trusting in external religiosity, if that's what you're trusting in, trust no longer. Because, as Jeremiah would say, the Babylonians are on their way. Jesus is doing a very Jeremiah activity right here. If you're trusting in this place right here, trust no more. Why? Well, for Jesus, He would tell them, and He does in the other Gospels, in Luke Gospel, in a, very, in a very subtle way that can be understood only in retrospect, the Romans are coming. They're coming. And He sees it in Luke chapter 23. And it's heartbreaking. Jesus says, weep for yourselves, O daughters of Jerusalem, because the next generation will look for mountains to fall on them, and not one stone will be set on top of itself anymore. And that's exactly what happened when Titus came through and tore Jerusalem to shreds. It's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did when he came into Jerusalem and he tore it to shreds. And all of a sudden, the worldview of the ancient Jewish people had collapsed, just like our worldview would collapse if we saw the Capitol Dome exploding. That's what happened. So here's Jesus, and He's in the temple, and He's doing something very Jeremiah, very Isaianic. He's calling them to account to say, this place here is unique. It's special. Why? Because this is a place of prayer. And I'm here to cleanse it. But what Jesus is doing here is even more provocative. Because He's embodying the cleansing activity itself. Isaiah, Jeremiah... In Zechariah, in the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel chapter 46 sees the Spirit of God come back to the temple, and now the water flows out of the temple again in fullness. All of the prophets are claiming that God will come and cleanse His temple. It's, it's Adonai Himself who returns to do the cleansing work. And what makes Jesus here in John chapter 2 completely different than Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Micah or Zechariah, what makes him completely different is he's actually embodying what Yahweh himself alone was allowed and expected to do. And he even plays with the Bible on this. Look at this verse here at the end. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Those words are put into the mouth of Jesus here, onto the identity of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, that phrase actually says, zeal for your house, I think it's Psalm 69, consumed me. Passive, I mean past tense. Here you have this notion about a future reality. Zeal for your house will consume me. There's a dynamic... Um, sense that's put into the mouth of Jesus Himself where God, who says zeal for my house will consume me, is now being embodied in the person and work of Jesus. And it's Jesus who's demonstrating the zeal that God shows Himself for His house. He's doing only what Adonai can do. Only Yahweh can cleanse His temple. And here is Jesus on the front end of His ministry in John's Gospel embodying that activity. But just like Jesus... He does more. Verse 18, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Now you hear the word sign again? 
Now, this is a difficult interpretive aspect of John's Gospel. Because signs in John's Gospel are viewed both positively and negatively at the same time. They're viewed positively when they are given as a gift of God in a revelatory way to engender faith. But they can also be viewed negatively when the Jews demand them in a certain way. So here Jesus is cleansing the temple, and they ask Him, well, what sign is connected to this? And Jesus gives them an answer. Certainly not one that they expected. Jesus answered them and He said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, that's bizarre. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build the temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But He was speaking about the temple of His body. Now here's an important verse that's going to give us a clue to John's understanding of the reading of the Bible. Verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. Now that's a very interesting verse. Matter of fact, that's a verse worth reflecting on for a long time. right? Jesus says something. He says something in an immediate moment. In an act of interlocution between himself and a listening agent. And he says these words. Uh, you tear this temple down in three days and I will raise it up again. And they thought this is surely an absurdity. He's speaking in riddles. He's speaking in some sort of metaphor. What is the metaphor you're speaking in? And they had no idea that the metaphor he was speaking in was a metaphor that was grounded in a reality that awaited a future unveiling. And they needed the resurrection of the dead itself to be the interpretive lens for now making sense of what? The Bible. What is it that they said? After Jesus had raised from the dead, now they understood what? And See how these two things are joined? They understood the Scriptures and the Word that Jesus had spoken. You, you, you don't get the one without the other. And, and obviously in John's Gospel, he's talking about the Old Testament here primarily, but we can expand it. In retrospect, because of the resurrection of the dead, we now understand the best way to, uh, to think through the implications of the Bible in relationship to what Jesus has said. Oh, the temple. The temple is the presence of God in the midst of His people. The temple is the Garden of Eden in the midst of the realm of, the, of death. Uh, you think about the Requiem Mass for the Dead. I've, I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. You know, the Requiem Mass for the Dead typically says, in the midst of life we are in death. What the temple provided as a sacramental presence in God, among God's people in the Old Testament and in Jesus' time was the reverse of that Requiem Mass for the Dead. In the midst of death, we see life. The temple was an intimation of immortality. It was the promise of the presence of God in their people. It was the promise of something more. And Jesus says, all this temple stuff, this is just a, to use technical term, this is just a, a figure. This is a symbol. Physical, real. But this is a symbol of something so much more. A theologians use obscure terms. That's why they, I guess, you know, you know, we like to use terms that will to power, Nietzsche stuff, I don't know. Um, but the, the technical terms that theologians often use are archetype and ectype. 
You know, archetypal knowledge is the knowledge that God has of himself. And then ectypal knowledge is our knowledge that we understand of God in, re- in a revealed way. It corresponds, but it certainly doesn't in any way exhaust God's knowledge of himself. We can use the similar language, I think, with the temple. The archetype of the temple is Jesus of Nazareth. The ectype, that actual temple building structure, whether it was the tent of meeting or whether it was the temple constructed on the mountain there in Jerusalem, that is an ectype. That is a, that's a symbol. That's a figure that's pointing to a reality that goes beyond itself. As St. Thomas Aquinas said, um, human beings, when we use language, we use words that, re- that refer, signs, words, that refer to things. That's what we do. And by the way, we do that in, in a cultural way um, that's not necessarily embedded in the fact that words should mean certain things. There's nothing about the word tree that just given the symbols T-R-E-E necessarily mean brown thing with green leaves. Right? It's what I'm doing right now with my little girl who's chattering away now. Mary, that's a tree. That's a C-A-T cat. We have little chicks at our house now. That those are chicks. Please don't kill them, right? <laughs> don't hands off, right? Um, so this is, the, I mean, this is the, the language that we use. Um, and here we see that the, 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 the Aquinas says we use words to refer to things, and we have to, in a cultural way, in a shared cultural reality, we share a, what what philosophers call a language game. We play games with language that aren't necessarily given, but we have to learn how to talk with one another. But Aquinas goes on to say, but only God can make a connection between things and things. We do it with words and things. But only God can make a connection between things and things. And here you see the temple itself organically and substantially connected to the person and work of Jesus. This is God's presence among His people. And it was anticipating something so much more that we really could have never figured out on our own. We need the fullness of the resurrection of the dead to make sense of this. Jesus died, and now He's raised again, and He's ascended to the Father. We saw this. We were eyewitnesses of these things. Oh, the temple. Right. The significance of the temple. Oh, the significance of our cult of our religious cult, of our sacrificial system, the significance of going to Passover year in and year out. Now it's beginning to become clearer. Not that it wasn't there before, but now our minds are made ready to understand the fullness of the Bible in relationship to the words of Jesus Himself. I think John chapter 2, verse 22, that is a rich verse about how one thinks about the Bible in relationship to Jesus. What's the time? Okay. Uh, verse 23, now when Jesus um, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, he believed many, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Do you see this? The signs are engendering faith, they're believing. But Jesus, on his part, now this is a troubling verse, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is pretty obscure because John doesn't expound for us what he means. I wish he did. But John doesn't expound for us what he means. What is it exactly in humanity that you know about that causes you, Jesus, not to trust yourself to anyone? Well, I think we can fill in the blank. And whatever you're filling in the blank is right. Right. Um, 
He knew humanity. He knew the frailty of humanity. You have to remember, right, in a, in a very real sense, and, I, I, and I don't, I'm struggling with the language to get at how grounded this is in reality, not just sort of abstract. In a real sense, it is Jesus of Nazareth as the divine second person of the Trinity who was himself the very Shekinah glory of God that led the people through the wilderness. What happened in Kadesh Barnea? That's not news on Jesus. Not just because he read about it, but because he was there, right? In a real sense. He precedes all things. So Jesus is the second person of the Trinity in his divine nature recognizes that I was there. I know the history of Israel. I know I was there with them. And I also know what's attested in the scriptures. And that is you want to find a complex relationship between God and his people. You want to know what's in the heart of humanity. You want to know humanity's proclivity to idolatry, to leave the God that redeems them to chase after lesser gods than just read the Old Testament from beginning to the end. So I think that's probably what John is tapping into here. Jesus knows. Right now they see the sign and they believe. But that's not necessarily enough to engender the faith that will grow into mature fruit, um, the mature fruit of a believer. Uh, Should we do Nicodemus? Do we have time? So there was a man named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night, that's important, under the shade of the dark. And he said to him, Rabbi, that's a term of endearment, a term of respect, teacher. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Now listen to this. Jesus plays with Nicodemus. Um, For no one can do these signs, there's our operative word again, that you do unless God is with him. But Jesus says to him, and this is what, just by the way, we're going to get this in John 4 too. Um, and, and maybe this, you know, maybe this is another reason why you don't invite Jesus to any social gatherings. Okay, now, G- Jesus re- never—I was just going to say in John's gospel—never allows those who approach them to determine the shape of the conversation. He, Jesus, does in some sense what I am trying to help some of my children, in particular, learn uh, not to do. In other words, one, one of my sons is what I call a competitive listener. You know? <laughs> in other words, I'm, I'm talking, but I know he, he's not listening. He is processing his rejoinder. Da, 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 right? And I was like, listen, you know, when you're talking with people, it's, it's a real skill to learn to listen and then to allow the conversation to kind of take shape after what you hear, not just that you're not really listening, but you're already framing how you want to say the next thing. But Jesus is a competitive listener, right? I mean, John comes and he says, you know, you're, you're amazing. I mean, uh, uh, Nicodemus, you're amazing. No one could do these things. No one, no one is able. That's the dunamis word in Greek. No one's able to do these things except they were from God. Oh, it's interesting, Jesus says. And look how he retorts. Truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he's not able to see the kingdom of God. I mean, can't you see Nicodemus saying, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I, I'm not here to talk about that. I want to know... That you came from God. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to frame the importance of this conversation because Nicodemus, I know what you really need to hear. No one is able. Do you hear that term? Nicodemus said, no one is able to do these things unless from God. Jesus says, no one is able to be born again. No one is able to see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, here's a funny thing about language. 
All right, and I'll, I'll say this quickly and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, you know, translations are a funny thing, and they um, are gifts. I mean, I, know that I, I hold up, I've got the ESV this morning, I hold up this ESV translation. This bears a lot of theological and philosophical thought, but I hold up this translation and I predicate it as the Word of God without any reservation. In other words, we have people this morning, I think, are we reading the ESV publicly here now? Is that the translation of choice? I don't know. Whatever's being read in here, we say, the, the, the lector says, this is the word of the Lord, and we all say, thanks be to God, and none of us say, this is the word of the Lord in the English translation. We just predicate it as God's word, and we move on. And that's the right thing to do. Now, the, I, I get it, if you press into that, it raises all kinds of issues, but the translations make decisions for us about linguistic options. Um, I tell my students at Beeson, you know, and you all know I pay the mortgage by teaching big biblical languages, and I tell my students at Beeson, I said, listen, if you think that coming into this class here and learning the biblical language is now going to answer all of your interpretive problems, i got really bad news for you. It's going to create more for you. Why? Well, because a translation has to make a decision. It's got to go a certain direction. And it's, and it's often right. I mean, it's fine. But we all know, don't you, that moving from one language to another language, there are certain idioms, there are certain linguistic usages that really can't move like that. Think, think about, who am I German? Anybody speak German in here? Oh, my German is sehr schlecht. I mean, I'm not very good at it. But anybody, there's a German word, will, which we say, I want. We would say, I want. But it's, it's desire, it's will. In other words, the German will takes a broader semantic range than our word will. You get this. There are, there are words in French that cover all kinds of linguistic options that for English speakers, we need three words to do that. And one French word will get the, get the job done. And this word here above, um, born again, is the Greek word anoten, which can mean at the same time either from above or again. So it can be something about a activity that's being repeated, or it can mean something more spatial, that is, from above. And Jesus is saying here, and all the translations say born again, but there's a note here in the ESV in the right. I don't think Jesus means the again part, because where he's going. Jesus means the spatial part. No one is going to inherit the kingdom of God unless he's born from above. But... Nicodemus misses it. He, he misses the linguistic play. And he thinks he's talking about the other form. So there's a complete... But Jesus knows what he's doing. He's playing with Nicodemus. There's a complete miss here. Well, how can a man be born again when he's old? That's not even what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about being born from above. He's talking about the activity of the Spirit. But Nicodemus says, what do you mean can a man be born when he is old? And this was, I mean, here's a teacher of the Jews saying this. Now, we're talking about this guy went to Harvard. I don't know how to say it. Right? He went to the temple. He went to, he's, he's one of the literary elites. Now listen to this question that he asked Jesus. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Oh, Nicodemus, how painful. You know, the, I, say this, I say this to my students. You know, I don't repeat this. I say, you know, no question is a dumb question, that kind of thing. And it, 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 or it never hurts to ask. That's really not true. I mean, sometimes like... I wish you kind of wouldn't have asked that question, you know. And here's Jesus like, well, 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 Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Well, we'll talk more about this next week. Let me just close with this. Water and spirit. Boy, you want to talk about two words that have engendered more interpretive debate than these two. I don't know. Maybe the only other place in John's gospel is in John chapter 6 where Jesus says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, what are you talking about, Jesus? Um, word and spirit here. Water and spirit. Is Jesus talking merely about human birth and spiritual birth? Is there an implicit reference here to baptism and the birth of the Spirit? I mean, there's a lot going on here that needs to be wrestled with on a primary level and a secondary level, but let there be no bones about it, despite all the interpretive complexity of this section. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, no one enters the kingdom of God apart from the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. It's God's activity. It's the Spirit's activity. It's not something that's, on, that's built on the basis of your ethnicity, of your elite religious training. Those who will inherit the kingdom of God are those who have been born from above. Those who have been regenerated by the operative work of the Spirit. And we'll talk a little bit more next week about the relationship between water and uh, Spirit. Okay, Lord, thank you. Bless my friends here. Thank you for John's gospel uh, that continues to through the centuries, speak to us in profound ways. Uh, give us a deep love of your word. Um, and let us follow the advice of John that because of the resurrection of the dead, because of the vindication, Jesus, of who you are, that we can read the Bible and your words properly from that standpoint. Give us those kinds of eyes and that kind of heart of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.